If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah and chapter 1. book of Jonah and chapter 1, this is part 3 of our new series where we're exploring the book of Jonah. We'll be back in Luke uh, sometime next month, but for now we'll be in Jonah. If you missed any of the first two, uh, we invite you to go and encourage you to go back and listen to those either through uh, the podcast on the website or on Facebook. Uh, if, also, if you want a scripture journal and you don't have one, there are some on the welcome desk. Uh, you can go out there and grab one of those, either now or at the conclusion of the service. So we're going to be in uh, Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10, okay? So we're going to start in verse 17 of chapter 1 and end there in chapter 10, or verse 10 of chapter 2. Uh, it also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and uh, read this together. Jonah 1, verse 17. Holy Spirit says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard me. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Many years ago, I came across an incredible picture online that had uh, become something of a viral sensation for a time. The picture, which we're going to put up for you on the screen there, is of a man who is said in the picture's caption to be a physician. Uh, the man said to be in the picture's caption, be a physician named Dr. Kraft from Sitka, Alaska. And he was kayaking one day, this is what the caption said, in uh, Caitlin Bay one day when his, this humpback whale came up and opened its mouth around him. Uh, the caption of the photo went on to say this, apparently in Kraft's own words, said, wow, what are the chances of taking this picture just at this moment? Yep, that is me in the picture. Yep, that is a whale that was just around the corner from the ferry terminal. Paddle really fast is the only thing I could think of at the time. The caption went on to say that Kraft escaped with only minor injuries and a great story to tell for years to come. So here you have a man who happened to be kayaking when a humpback whale happened to come up to the surface and open its mouth around him, and someone also happened to be there to photograph this incredible event of someone who was almost a modern-day Jonah. That's pretty, isn't that pretty incredible? What are the chances? Well, along with many things in our society, all is not what it seems. It turns out that the original photographer of both pictures was bored one day 
and decided to jump on Photoshop, and he took a picture that he shot of his friend kayaking and a picture, which is, we'll put up uh, next. He took a picture he had of his friend kayaking and a picture of a whale opening its mouth as it came to the surface and spliced them together to produce that first picture. And you can see the two pictures that were made into one, right? Um, it turns out that the man in the photo was, in fact, a physician, and he was indeed named Dr. Kraft, and he was kayaking one day, but he was not, in fact, nearly swallowed by a humpback whale. This picture, the first one, circulated around the internet for a reason, right? On the surface, it seems like a one-in-a-billion photograph, but all is not what it seems. Pictures can be deceiving, and so could our initial perception of things. As we continue our study in the book of Jonah, we see our rebellious prophet thrown into the sea where he was, in fact, actually swallowed by a great fish. And it is in the belly of this great fish that he composed the psalm of thanksgiving, which runs from verse 2 through verse 9. Now, on the surface, when one reads this psalm, it appears we have a new man in Jonah, right? He seems to be someone who realizes the error of his ways, and is repentant, and he's ready, when you read this, to turn things around. He seems to be contrite, now fully prepared to obey the Lord. But like a viral image of a kayaker getting nearly eaten by a whale, Jonah's prayer in the belly of a great fish is not what it seems. This chapter has been the subject of much speculation and debate, and you know why, don't you? Not because of the content of the psalm, but because of the two verses that surround it. 117 and 210. This is where the fascination and speculation and debates come in. Could a man survive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? We ask. Is there a fish large enough to do this? Did this really happen or is this some parable of some sort? What would he smell like when he was barfed up on the surface? Of those questions, while, all those questions while appealing, miss the point entirely of this scene and this chapter. As we said in week one, if you could believe Genesis 1-1, right, then Jonah 1:17 and 2:10 should be no problem. Even the pagan sailors of chapter one realize something about Yahweh when they encounter him for the first time that we would all be wise to learn, which is, Lord, you could do whatever you want. But what we may miss here in Jonah 2 is that the author himself is not overly concerned with the fish. He's mentioned it as a matter of fact, and not at all intended for us to sit and wonder how all this was possible. The fish is primarily a vehicle that the Lord uses to teach his rebellious prophet a lesson in the same way he did with the ship in chapter 1. Mark Buchanan put it this way. He said, I'm just old enough to remember that at one time, not long ago really, the central task for the faithful preacher of Jonah was to convince hard-bitten, science-bred parishioners that there are fish in the sea big enough to swallow a man whole and to explicate just exactly how a man could survive intact three days inside of such a fish. The main hermeneutic for the book was not theology, but ichthyology, the scientific study of fish. So now let me confess, he says, my secret heresy. The fifth question is beside the point. The real puzzle of Jonah, its perpetual source of wonder and doubt is this. Why is God so deeply concerned about not just Nineveh, but this man Jonah? This sulky, grippy, stingy, self-absorbed little man. Why him? 
Why would God pursue him to the ends of the earth, to the bottom of the sea, and to the outskirts of Nineveh? Now, my suggestion to you this morning, then, is that if there's anything to be fascinated about in this text, if there's anything that should floor us, if there's anything that should dazzle our imaginations, if there's anything we should be filled with wonder and awe about, it should be this, that God has radical grace on not just wayward rebels, but self-righteous sinners as well. That's what should astonish us. That should be our focus. And to be perfectly honest, that God would have grace on rebels is actually the greatest miracle of this book. Is it not? His patient kindness towards Jonah is a greater miracle than Jonah being swallowed by a great fish who subsequently barfs him up on the shore. So we need not go about researching the gullet and stomach size of the biggest sea creatures in the world to wonder if a full-grown man can fit and stay. But rather, we should research our very own hearts to discover the wonder of wonders that God would save sinners like us. So our controlling phrase this morning will be the controlling phrase of the whole psalm, which is the final phrase of verse 9. Look at it. This is our controlling phrase this morning, okay? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Just say it with me, okay? Salvation belongs to to the Lord. In that phrase is grace, and grace is the theme of the chapter. Truly that phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, if we could be so bold to say, is the message of the Bible in miniature, isn't it? The theme in redemption history from beginning to end is that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Bible is clear that there is salvation found nowhere else but in God, and that if we are to be saved at all, it must not only be provided by God, but it must be God who pursues us and shows us our desperate need for rescue. As we talked about last week, we must see then that like Jonah sinking down into the depths of the sea, we too are in desperate need of outside rescue. Think for a moment. If Jonah, who had just been tossed into the ocean, wanted to save himself, could he do it? Jonah was saved. That's how he's speaking this, 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 how he's able even to say this psalm in the belly of the fish. He is saved. He was saved from despair and from certain death on the sea floor. What did he contribute to that rescue exactly? His situation was indeed desperate. Consider how he describes his descent. Just look through the psalm. He says he was in distress. He says he felt as if he was in Sheol itself, which is the abode of the dead. He said he was in the heart of the sea, and he was trapped in the billows like a prison. He says that he was at the bottom to where seaweed was wrapped around his head. And he says his life was fainting away. In other words, his death imminent. So let me ask again, what did Jonah contribute to Jonah's salvation? Not one thing. One commentator said, the answer is that Jonah contributed only his unbelief, rebellion, folly, and sin. When Jonah was thrown into the waves, there was nothing he could do for his own salvation. Realizing God's sovereign initiative in his deliverance, Jonah thus prays from the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. Or to put it another way, Jonah's contribution, only contribution to his salvation, was the sin which made it necessary. Salvation from beginning to end is from the Lord, yes? Charles Spurgeon, he was reflecting on this when Uh, He was visiting uh, Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight in England. 
This is the castle that King Charles I was held prior to his execution following the English Civil War. Well, on one occasion, his escape was arranged by his compatriots, Charles I's escape. Uh, everything was laid out for him to get away. Everything was there for him to escape. His followers had the means at the bottom of the wall. They put horses there that he could travel to the shore. And once they got to the coast, there was boats waiting for him to take him to a different land. So everything was ready for him to escape. His friends had done literally all they could to rescue him. All he had to do, all Charles first had to do was escape his window. All he had to do is get out of the window, and there's some horses that will take him to shore where the boats are waiting. His friends did literally everything else. All he had to do, get out of the window, and he'll be home free. You know the problem, don't you? He couldn't get out of the window. He got stuck. So all his friends did for him went for nothing. And this is how Spurgeon applies it. He says, so it is with the sinner. If God had provided every means of escape and only required him to get out of his dungeon, he would have remained there for all eternity. Why is, not the by na- why is not the sinner by nature dead in sin? And if God requires him to make himself alive, and then afterward he will do the rest for him, then verily, my friends, we are not so much obliged to God as we had thought for. For if he requires so much as that of us, we can do it. We can do the rest without his assistance. And if God does require of the sinner dead in sin that he should take the first step, then he requireth just that which renders salvation as impossible under the gospel as it ever was under the law. Seeing man is as unable to believe as he is to obey and is just as much without power to come to Christ as he is without power to go to heaven without Christ, the power must be given to him of the Spirit. Do you see? It isn't as if God provides some of the salvation and we provide some of it. It's not that God saves us partly, And we save ourselves partly. Salvation belongs to the Lord and no one else. Say it again with me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this, we, we have a better chance of climbing to the moon on a rope made of sand than we do in saving ourselves, as Whitfield once said. And this is grace, because what do we deserve? What did Jonah deserve? I don't think anyone can look at Jonah's drowning plight and say that he deserves to be rescued. Can you? He has been portrayed in the worst possible light from beginning to end in this book, actually. Even he knows the just deserts of his rebellion and running from the presence of God is death. He knows that. He knows that, and that is partly why he tells the sailors, throw me overboard, because he knows he deserves death. But God saves him anyway, doesn't he? This great fish is something God appointed. That's what the text says, right? God appointed a great fish. Who knows? Maybe he created him that instant for this purpose. And he appointed him to swallow up Jonah and not his punishment. This is a mercy. Jonah needs the time in the belly of the fish because it's not enough that he knows salvation belongs to the Lord. He needs to realize he is in need of mercy and salvation himself. Don't you see? He knows full well the Ninevites need mercy. He just doesn't want them to have it. He needs to learn that he needs mercy as much as they do. So this fish acts as an instrument of Yahweh's salvation and a symbol of his free, undeserved grace. 
As R.T. Kelly once said, Kendall once said, the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. And Jonah needs that education. And do we need that education any less than he does? We need to come to grips with the truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. Do we need to come to grips with that? We never graduate, my friend, from that fundamental truth. Never. Because, see, we, know, we who know Christ have the propensity to realize this at conversion, that salvation belongs to the Lord, but not be about constantly remembering it as our sustenance throughout our lives. We should never move past the astonishment that God would save us and that it is God alone that saves. We don't just need beginning grace. Listen, we don't just need beginning grace. We need continuing grace. Tim Keller says, many people sing amazing grace and give lip service to the idea, but that grace has not profoundly changed them. God's grace becomes wondrous, endlessly consoling, beautiful, and humbling only when we fully believe, grasp, and remind ourselves of all of these three background truths, that we deserve nothing but condemnation, that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and that God has saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. Some people, he says, have too high a view of themselves. God's grace is not stunning because they don't feel they need it, or at least not so much. Others do indeed see themselves as failures, but while they may have some notion of abstract God of love, they have little idea of the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice to purchase them out of debt, slavery, and death. They aren't lost in wonder, love, and praise at the lengths and depths to which he has gone for us. What Jonah shows us is not only that we need grace, but he shows us what we're being saved from. Did you see it? You could miss it. He tells us. The worst thing that can happen to us. You know, in this psalm, he tells us the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. Do you know what the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is? Look at the beginning of verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. This is it, isn't it? The worst thing that could happen to us is to be driven away from God's sight. What does that mean? How can one be driven from the sight of the one who sees everything? Well, it's an idiom for not having fellowship with God. It's separation from him, and it's the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. This is why Jonah's description of his descent and near-death experience are pictures of drowning mixed with pictures of being in Sheol, which is the abode of the dead. Because, as Philip Johnson has said, Sheol is the opposite theological extreme to Yahweh, and the dominant feature for its inhabitants is their separation from him. Jonah's images bear this out, bars closing in on him, being in a pit, being enveloped by the billows and wrapped by seaweed like grave clothes, being in a place where there is no escape, for no one gets out of Sheol. In fact, here's some gee whiz that I found interesting. Look at verse 3. You see this word, Flood in your ESV, in verse 3, that word literally means stream or river. Why is he talking about a river at the bottom of the sea? It's because in ancient Near Eastern thought, there was a, they thought there was a river flowing at the bottom of the sea, and this is served as a threshold to the underworld. <laughs> some, of the, some of them thought that this is where souls were judged to determine if they're guilty or innocent. Jonah thought, that's where I am. He thought, he's entering a place 
where Yahweh was not. And this is the worst possible scenario. He thought he was certainly going to the place of the dead, and there's no fellowship with God in that place. There's no worship or praise possible. Death ends the opportunity to turn to God and have fellowship and unity with him. And this is the worst thing that can happen to him. Worse than even death by drowning was to have broken fellowship with his creator. And if one lives with broken fellowship with God and dies still with broken fellowship, then they will never have that fellowship for all eternity. This is why, do you understand? Hell is bad and heaven is good. Whatever we might picture as hell, whether it be fire and flames and torment or physical pain, you know, the true reason hell is hell is because Jesus isn't there. It's hell because there's no fellowship with God there. There's no worship, no praise, no communion with Jesus in hell. This is why it's the worst thing imaginable. A place without Jesus is hell. Conversely, why is heaven good? Well, according to the bad theology we get from country music, heaven is basically whatever we like doing on earth maximized, right? Apparently, if you like sitting on the porch swing or fishing or hunting or driving an old pickup down your favorite dirt road or drinking Miller Lite, that's what you're going to be doing in heaven, right? According to country music. You know, I'm right. That's why you should only listen to Led Zeppelin, all right? Don't listen to country music. Obviously, this picture of heaven is not right. Heaven is heaven because that's where Jesus is. What will we be doing in heaven, we ask and we speculate, even though the Bible's silent on it. You know what the answer is? Don't worry about it. Just know that heaven is where Jesus is in fullness, and that's all the heaven we need. That's where unbroken fellowship with him is. That's where there's no pain because you're in his presence fully and finally. Perfect communion with the triune God is why heaven is heaven. Robert Murray McChain said, we could not be happy without Christ. Take us to the gold, golden pavement, the pearly gates, the songs, the thrones, the palms, the angels. We would still say, where is the God man that died for me? Where is the angel that redeemed me for all evil? Where is Jesus? That Jonah knows the misery of banishment because he feels it as he sinks to the depths of the sea. But he knows it more profoundly, do you see? Because he knows what it's like to be in God's presence, to enjoy fellowship with him. Is that not what we see in chapter 1? When God comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, Jonah says, no thank you, and what does, that, what does he do? The text tells us in 1.3 that Jonah fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of the verse, it goes to say he went into the ship in Tarsh to go to Sharship away from the presence of the Lord. So even though Jonah says in 2.3 that God cast him into the sea and that it is God's billows and waves that pass over him, the truth is Jonah is the one who fled from the presence of the Lord. It was his choice to break fellowship with God. And he's the one who told the sailors to cast him overboard. And it was his choice to sink to the bottom of the sea. His choice has been in this book to flee from the presence of the Lord. Presence he had once enjoyed. And now that he feels that presence slipping away, he sees that this is the worst possible thing that one can suffer. If you've never enjoyed the presence of the Lord, you might say this is not a big deal. But if you'd enjoyed the presence of the Lord in your life, you know this is the worst possible thing that could happen in life and in death. You remember the movie uh, The Patriot? Do you guys remember that one? 
starred Mel Gibson before he went crazy. And uh, he was a re- reluctant Revolutionary War colonel. And this movie was released 23 years ago in the year 2000. Well, there's a scene where Gibson's character is leaving. If you've seen it, you remember the scene. It's very profound. His character is leaving, and he's going back to war, right, after a time that he had spent with his family. And one of his daughters, you remember, won't speak to him. He, he, he's, he keeps asking her to talk, but she won't say anything. He's saying goodbye, and he kneels down before her, and he says just one word. That's all I want. But she won't, she won't say anything. Then he reaches to hug her, and she, she steps back. So he gets up, and he gets on his horse, and he starts to ride away. And she runs after him and finally speaks. She says, Papa, don't go. I'll say anything. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say it. Just please don't go. Now, I'll tell you, there isn't a dad in the world who could watch that and not get emotional. Like, I don't care how, who you are or how tough you think you are. If you're a father and you're watching this, you're shedding a few tears, if not fall out weeping, unless you're an absolute robot, okay? Something is going on in your heart while you watch that. Why? Because you know what it's like to have a relationship with your child. And one of the worst things you could imagine is to not have that. Until you know communion, you won't know the pain of separation or banishment. This is what Jonah is showing us. He knows communion with the Father, and he knows not having it is the worst prospect in the whole world, in life and in death. For Jonah, sinking like a boulder into the ocean isn't the worst thing that can happen to him. Drowning isn't the worst thing that could happen to him. Having seaweed wrapped around his head isn't the worst thing that could happen to him. Death itself is not the worst thing that can happen to him. The worst thing that can happen is separation from his God. When he says there in verse 4 that I will again look upon your holy temple, this isn't him confidently saying, I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to go visit the temple once more. This is him saying he will continue to pray as his life slips away. And he will direct his prayers to the temple where God's presence is manifested most profoundly on earth. He is, sure, he is sure this is it. And dying outside of God's presence is the worst of all because it's final. We must realize that the worst possible thing that can happen to us is not all those dreaded things we think of in our imaginations. The worst thing that can happen to us is to live and die without being reconciled to our God. You realize this? Russell Moore said it very well. He was talking to a group of seminary students. He said, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is not cancer. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not financial ruin. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not being thrown into jail. The worst thing that could happen to you is not being beheaded by jihadists. The worst thing that could happen to you is being abandoned to your sin, being cursed by God, being crucified outside the camp, and that has already happened to you if you are in Christ. Conversely, he says, the best thing that could ever happen to you is not that you will have a successful ministry. It's not that you will have a claim in the culture. It's not that you will have a picture-perfect family. And it is not that you will exist in a culture that has traditional family values. The best thing that could happen to you is being raised from the dead to newness of life in fellowship with the living God and being assigned by him a mission as an heir of God and joint heir with Christ. And that has already happened to you too. We see again how Jesus is the better Jonah, don't we? Whereas Jonah got himself into trouble 
whereas he deserved the judgment of God, whereas he felt the abandonment of God through his own choices and his own fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Jesus left his heavenly abode to enter into the wrath of God. Not to atone for his own shortcomings, for he had done, but to pay the penalty for sins, not his own. Brian Estelle said it well. He said, Christ cried out with a cry of dereliction never before imagined or equaled since. The expression of grief voiced by the strained human poem of Jonah finds its ultimate echo in Christ's cry from the cross. As Christ hung from the tree on Calvary's hill, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The full wrath of God that sinners stored up was being poured out upon him. He felt the separation that we earned. Those were our just desserts. Jesus experienced the worst thing that one could possibly feel. He felt what it was like to be abandoned in Sheol. Something Jonah thought he was going to experience but did not. Jesus experienced the hell as it is known in God forsakenness. That is the worst thing that can happen to you. If you give your life to Jesus, however, you are assured that you will never, ever experience that because he did it in your place. As Dr. Moore said in that quote I read a moment ago, the worst thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to you by virtue of your identification with Christ. In this life, there are physical and emotional pains that sometimes so bad that we wonder how anything could be worse. But nothing in the realm of existence is worse than being forsaken of God. And yet Jesus voluntarily took that on for you and me and our sin and our selfishness and our greed and our idolatry, and we don't deserve an ounce of that substitutionary sacrifice. To the contrary, we deserve to be crushed and forsaken, but because of the great love with which he loved us, a love found within only himself, he gladly came and took on that forsakenness. The worst thing imaginable for you and me. Is that about the best news you've ever heard? This is grace. You know, what's also fascinating about Jonah in this chapter is that he embodies two extremes when it comes to postures in life towards salvation. Did you notice that? What I mean is this. On the one hand, he's a sinner descending into the depths to the point of crying out in despair. Yes? But he also maintains a self-righteous and self-centered disposition all throughout the psalm. Saying, you, my friend, if you can hear my voice, you have one of those two postures this morning. Either you know yourself to be a sinner in need of radical grace and mercy, both beginning grace and sustaining grace, which causes you to fly to the mercy of Christ, or you fancy yourself someone who isn't actually that bad, and you're resting in your goodness and your own morality and your own religious record, or your comparison with others. You're one or the other this morning. It's one of those two postures. But this chapter shows us that there is grace available no matter who you are. And it shows us that no matter who you are, you need the grace of God to save and sustain you. Look at the first one. We said in week one that Jonah's posture is intentionally portrayed as descent. Right? You remember that in week one? (coughs) The author, whether it's Jonah or someone else, It's showing us that sin and disobedience are both ways of running from God, and they lead to a downward trajectory. God came to Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh. Jonah ran from God instead of obeying his call. He went down to Joppa, 
Yes? He went down to the boat from the city. He went down into the belly of the boat. He went down to the bed of the cot. He laid down. He was thrown down off the boat. He sank down to the bottom of the sea. He went down to Sheol, or so he thought at least. Down, 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 down. This is where sin leads. But see, for those who know this, and for those who know themselves to be sinners, and who know they deserve separation from God, and who see themselves as rebels, and who feel like they are drowning in their own sin and rebellion, they are the ones who will cry out in desperation and distress. Only when you see yourself for who you are by nature and the downward trajectory this comes with will you be able to get to the point of crying out for rescue. Those who feel the waves and the billows, have you ever felt the waves and the billows? Those who are aware of the sin in them and their helplessness to save themselves, it is they who will cry out. And guess what? Verse 1, the Lord will answer. The Lord will hear your voice. If you feel the crushing weight of sin and you wonder how God could love you at all, all you need to do, verse 7, is remember the Lord. And remember, 4-2, he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The biggest disaster, as we said, is to be abandoned of God. But if you remember the goodness of God and cry out in distress, my friend, he will save you. And he will apply the work of Christ to your bankrupt account. I said it before, but it bears repeating because I think we don't realize this. What will keep you from God is not unrighteous badness like we think, but self-righteous goodness. If you feel like a sinner and you know yourself to be a sinner and you get to a place of desperation where you cry out to God for mercy, he will save you. And he will never, ever, 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 ever let you go. Not a million years. Not for anything. Because Christ felt abandoned of God, you never will be. That's a promise from the God who never lies and always keeps his word. Again, why is Jonah saved here? Not because of his merit or deeds at all. In fact, he's the reason he's in this mess in the first place. In terms of salvation, God did it all. It is the strength of God's mercy that saves Jonah, not his ability to save himself. He contributed nothing but a feeble cry in desperation, and that is all that is required to be saved of God. And not even in this is a work, <laughs> for we would not know our desperation and neediness if not for God showing us. One of my favorite illustrations, surely you've heard me tell this before, but I really like it, and I'm not very creative. Steve Brown tells of a homeless little boy knocked on the door of an orphanage, and he was dirty as can be. He was soaking wet from the rain, and all he was dressed in was rags. That's all he owned. Well, the man opened the door of the orphanage, and he looked him up and down, and he said, Son, I don't know a thing about you. What have you got to recommend to us? The little boy said, Nothing, sir. I thought maybe these rags would be enough. This melted the man's heart, and he said, it's enough, son, you come in. Brown goes on to say, Jesus does that too. If someone told you that going to Jesus required anything but rags, they lied to you. Charles Spurgeon said, as long as a man has nothing to boast of, there is no Christ for him. But the man, he has, no, he has nothing of his own, Christ is his. Wallace, you are anything, Christ is nothing to you. But when you are nothing, Christ is everything. All warrant that a sinner needs in coming to Christ is to know that he is a sinner. 
Do you see? But this is sustaining grace too, remember? When you, as a believer, who has received converting grace, feel like a fraud. You ever feel like a fraud? When you feel like your sin closing in on you, when you feel like there's no way God could possibly love you or want you, you need to remember that it is Christ who saves you. And it is his grip on you that sustains you, and he will never release that hold no matter how big you think you've blown it. He'll never abandon you, remember? Dane Orland said, if you're a believer, God's love has brought you to Jesus Christ, you are safe. Your sins can darken your awareness of God's love, but they cannot darken the reality of that love. Weary saint, remember yourself, remind yourself and remind yourself often that Christ came into the world to save sinners and that he took on the billows and the waves and he descended in the belly of Sheol, as it were, and he did it for you because he loves you, because he wants you, and he will not cast you off. You are too precious to him. Don't you see? But see, conversely, Jonah displays a radically different posture as well. He is a self-righteous and self-centered windbag. Did you notice that? Did you notice in the psalm, you scan the psalm again, Jonah never actually acknowledges his wrong, does he? He tells only of the danger he was in. But he never addresses why he was in danger. Nor does he pledge to obey the divine commission to go to Nineveh. Further, look at this. He says, I, ten times in eight verses. And my, seven times. And actually, the prayer itself, even though we, we see much about the mercy of God, it's ambiguous to whether Jonah thinks he's saved because of God's mercy or because of his own piety. Nothing is Jonah's fault here. According to Jonah, God cast him into the deep. Isn't that what he says? It's God's waves, your waves, your billows that pass over me. He has been driven away from Yahweh. But he doesn't say it's because of his actions. It almost sounds like he's the victim. Daniel Timmer says, Jonah is glossing over any personal responsibility for his brush with death by affirming the agency of everyone but himself. But think about this. Now you're reading the psalm. Look, look, glance again through the psalm. See its theme. See what he's talking about. And he's talking about this play, and all of a sudden... In verse 8, he's talking about people who pay regard to idols. How they forsake steadfast love. What in the world is he talking about? You, you realize what he's doing, right? He's contrasting himself with the sailors from the boat. They cried out to idols when they thought they were in mortal danger, but Jonah doesn't pay regard to vain idols. See how he phrases it? Look again at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I... Do you see? But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. He's self-righteously comparing himself to the sailors. They worship idols. I don't. And here's some more irony. He talks about how he's going to sacrifice to Yahweh in contrast to the sailors who worship vain idols. But what he doesn't know is what happens in chapter 1, verse 16, is the sailors do what? <laughs> sacrifice to Yahweh. This guy is a mess. And you know how I know that he's a mess? You want to know how I know? He's just like me. <laughs> you know, sometimes, I don't know if you can relate to this, when I think about my own heart, I wonder how God could love me at all. And sometimes when I think of how other people who sin differently than me, in my self-righteousness, I'm comforted by my piety <laughs> and religiosity. 
Sometimes I feel like the biggest fraud there's ever been. Other times I think I'm pretty moral, and isn't God lucky to have me? Sometimes everything is my fault, and other times nothing is. Sometimes I wonder why God doesn't cast me out, and other times I think I'm owed better circumstances. Do you feel that duality in your heart? I bet you do. But if you're someone who basks in your morality or your piety or your goodness or you look down on others who sin different than you do or you believe yourself owed by God either good circumstances, wealth and health, or salvation, you too can be saved. But you ironically need to go further than someone who believes themselves to be too bad. If you aren't astonished that you could be saved, if you aren't amazed by the grace offered to you in Christ, if you have never felt desperate and in distress because of your sin, if you don't realize that what you've earned is banishment from God, but he offers you lavish grace and mercy because of Christ, then it's time to get acquainted with the real state of your heart. Do you want to know if you're self-righteous? You ever, you ever ask, how can I know if I'm self-righteous? Let's take a test real quick. You ready? I want you to think of the worst person you know. All right, somebody pop into your head. If the first person that popped into your head wasn't you, you're self-righteous. And also, you don't know your heart very well. If, if you fit into any of what I described, it's time to see who you really are before God and in and of yourself. It's time to be saved by grace. Let's consider a biblical illustration. We considered this a few weeks ago, but it's a helpful reminder. In one of Jesus' parables, you remember he said there's two men. They went to the temple one day. They went to pray at the same time on the same day. One was a Pharisee, height of religious piety in Israel. Everyone admired, everybody looked up to this guy as good, in his goodness and morality and his biblical knowledge. Everybody wanted to be like him. Well, the other guy who came was a tax collector. Bottom, complete opposite, right? Bottom of the community, everyone hated this guy. He's a race traitor, reprobate. He, he was someone Jonah would have really hated. Well, the Pharisee goes up to the front. Everyone could see him. He lifts up his hands to heaven and his eyes to heaven. He looks up. He spreads his arm. He loudly exclaims, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not greedy or unjust or an adulterer or like that tax collector over here. What is he doing here anyway? Well, thank you, God, that I pray, pay above my tithe and I fast more than is required. Amen. Well, then the tax collector, he's in the corner, right, away from everyone. He, he, he can't look to heaven. He looks down at the ground. He beats his chest. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That, that's the only thing he says. And Jesus says only one of those guys went home justified. And would you know who it was? The one who found no justification in himself, which drove him to cry simply, have mercy on me, the sinner. Do you see? The one who says, thank you that I'm so moral. Thank you that I'm so good and better than other people. Is someone who remains unjustified, while the one who goes to the cross of Christ and simply says, have mercy on me, receives the justification that only Jesus provides. And why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord, and no one else. <clears throat> I wonder which posture you have today. Actually, you know what? It's not for me to know, is it? It's between you and God. Are you someone who has never felt the fallen state of your heart 
and then saw that salvation can only come from Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and thus cried out in distress to God for rescue. If you haven't, today's the day of salvation. May the Spirit of God move you to that point. Are you someone who has at one point cried out to God for rescue, but now you've become self-sufficient and so convinced of your goodness, you just think you're crushing this Christian thing? So impressed by your own piety that you no longer go back to the cross and you no longer depend on Christ for sustaining grace. Are you no longer amazed by grace? Have you now believed yourself to be owed grace rather than seeing grace for what it truly is? Today is the day to be wrecked anew by the glorious unmerited grace of God. May the Spirit of God ruin you afresh and you rely once more on his sustaining power. Or are you someone who feels too bad to be saved? Are you someone who feels too bad for God to love you at first or continually? Are you someone who feels like a fraud and wonders how God could love you at all? Oh, beloved of God, look again to Christ and look again to Christ and look again to Christ. Would you see his beauty? Would you see that he has a beating heart for you and your plight? Would you see that when you feel like a sinner, that he loves sinners? <laughs> we see that he, in fact, came to earth to feel the abandonment of God because he doesn't want you to ever feel that. See his love for you and that you can never be so dirty that he can't clean you up. And no matter what you do, he will never be repelled by you. May the Spirit of God comfort you and remind you of Christ's hold on you. In any of these cases, there's only one way to respond, isn't there? Verse 9, with thanksgiving and praise and worship. How can we do otherwise in light of so great a gospel and so glorious and loving and gracious and merciful a God as this? You know, Jonah was right about something, wasn't he? Salvation belongs to the Lord and only the Lord. We could cry out to God and receive rescue in our distress because Jesus put himself in a position where his cries weren't answered. He did that for the desperate sinner and the self-righteous sinner too so that they will feel his love and be reconciled and justified so we can receive initial grace and sustaining grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord, says Jonah. Would you, let's say it, can we say it again one more time? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let that sink deeply into your heart today. Let it be your comfort in your distress, your motivation in life, and may it ever be upon our lips, hearts, and minds all of our days.